I wonder if you, you are living the life that you thought you would live. Think about your life right now, your age, your employment, your school, your marital status, your happiness in that status, your income, your lack thereof. Think about your life right now as it is. Now think of, think of your life as you thought it would be at this stage. Maybe, maybe you find yourself not exactly where you thought you would be. And maybe, just maybe, as you've reflected on this, it's introduced some questions which, if you're honest, they border on doubts. Questions like, where is this good and powerful God who's supposed to be in control of my life? Where's this God who's supposedly working all these things for my good? At the beginning of Genesis 37, Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. Joseph is enjoying the most privileged place in the most privileged family on earth, the very family chosen by God to be a blessing to the world, to enjoy God's presence, God's place forever. But as we just read, by the end of Genesis 37, Joseph's good life is gone. He is hundreds of miles from home. He's far from the promised land. He's sold into slavery, into the very house of the very enemies of Yahweh. And the question arises, at least in our minds, where is this good and powerful God who's supposed to be in control of Joseph's life? Where is this God who's supposed to be powerfully working all things for good, for the good of his people, those who love him? Genesis 37, the chapters that follow it, they're here to teach us, at least in part, the truth that the great hymn writer William Cooper had found in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He says in that first verse, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The main point what we see here in Genesis 37 and afterwards, right unto the end of the book. The thing that we can take away is that the Lord is, in fact, in control. He really is fulfilling his gracious promises, even when our feeble senses cannot perceive it. This passage, Genesis 37, it just begs us to ponder the wonderful providence of God. By providence, all I mean is God's good control over everything. And we need to think hard on this. So to help us, the narrative now focuses on the lives of Jacob's sons, and notably, most specifically, his son, Joseph. If you look there in the first couple verses there, verses 1 and 2, they orient us in the context and purpose of what's coming next. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. The people of God are in the place of God. That's basically what he's saying there. So they're still sojourners. They don't yet have a perfect, permanent dwelling in Canaan. There's still others occupying the land that need to be pushed out, but still, they're where they're supposed to be. Verse 2, the author tells us these are the generations of Jacob. And if we're paying attention, if we're close readers of the narrative of Genesis, we'll see that the, even the very structure of the book of Genesis preaches purpose. 
So this is not a book that's just been haphazardly thrown together. It's one that's been intentionally ordered. It's weaved together to appropriately reveal what the Lord has for us. And one of those things that weaves it together is this phrase. These are the generations of, and then fill in the blank of whatever name is coming next. This phrase is used 10 times in the narrative of Genesis to introduce a new section, a new focus of the narrative. We saw this way back in Genesis chapter 2 at the very beginning of this thing. We're just talking about the creation narrative. And we see it in Adam, and then in Noah, then in Abraham, Abraham's father, Jacob, on and on. Ten times we come across this phrase, and each time it's transitioning us to a new focus of the narrative where we need to hone our attention. And here in chapter 37, we have the tenth and final occurrence. In other words, this is the final story and the final focus of the book of Genesis. And who's the focus? The family of Jacob, also known by this time as Israel. The final movement of Genesis, it lays before us the 12 sons from whom the people of God would come. In other words, Moses' intention now is to reveal to us God's purpose and ways in working through the 12 sons of Israel. And the main vessel, the main focus that we need to kind of hone our attention to is this one son named Joseph. And verse 2 continues to set our attention and our direction in this way. Look there, verse 2. Joseph, he says, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So we have Joseph as the focus of this upcoming narrative. But what's interesting in this story is that most of Joseph's actions, they're actually reactions. So much, much more is done to Joseph than is done by Joseph in these narratives. In other words, the, the narrative presents Joseph as a main character who is very much not in control of his story. So right from the very beginning, Joseph is cast as a character who's being acted upon. His story is one that's being controlled by the outside, by someone else. And the question that should come in our minds is then, well, who is that person? Who's in control? Is it his father? Is it his brothers? Is it his master, his captors? Same question is for us. Who's in control of your life? Is it you? Is it your employer? Is it your spouse? Your circumstances? Well, to answer this question, I think all we need to do is comb through this passage. And what I want us to do is take note of and reflect on three things that are done to Joseph. Things done outside of his choice, outside of his power, outside of his control. And I think that we'll note some really helpful things about our own lives. First thing I want us to see is that Joseph is chosen. You see this in verses 2 through 11. The first four verses there bring us up to speed on Joseph. For one, he says Joseph is a teenager. Verse 2 tells us specifically that he's 17 years old. So this is interesting, right? So we have a number of teenagers here in the church. Maybe you're a teenager and you're, maybe your struggle if you're a teenager is not so much the existence of God. So you're pretty convinced that the Lord does exist. But maybe your struggle is more along the lines of something like you feel like God is kind of the God of the older people. Like you wouldn't say it like this, but the way we talk about it, it feels like you're, you only start getting, getting in kind of on the Lord's radar when you've hit a certain age or a certain stage of life. 
And I'll just say, if, if we communicate the Lord to you in that way, I just apologize for that. Because here in this passage, we have a God who desires to show what he's doing. He's desiring to show his providential care and kindness and love and control. And to do that, who does he choose? A teenager, 17 years old, given to us here in this story. Verse 2 also tells us how Joseph spent his time, like the rest of his brothers, it says, he spent his time in the fields as a shepherd. But unlike his brothers, as we mentioned before, he is loved in a special way by his father. Verse 3, now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because Joseph was the son of his old age. So if you remember, Jacob had four wives, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, Zilpah. We're not saying that's right, only that's what happened. And of those four wives, he loved Rachel the best. And Rachel, as we know, has recently died. But the son whom she bore to Jacob remains, Joseph. And Jacob loves most the son of the wife, of the wife that he loved the most. And kind of strangely, as you read this passage, this favoritism is not a secret at all. You see that? In fact, Jacob kind of parades this favoritism onto Joseph. We see this in several ways. So I think, first of all, you notice Joseph, while he's a shepherd with his brothers, he seems in some kind of way to be in an elevated role above his brothers, even in the field. So in verse 2, he's the one bringing reports of his brothers to his father. Bad reports at that. Later on in verse 12, all the rest of his brothers are out shepherding while Joseph is at home. So Joseph only goes out into the fields in verse 12 in order to bring a report of how things are going to his father. We see this favoritism even more explicitly in the thing for which Joseph is most widely known. That is the fact that Jacob gives Joseph and no one else this special gift. Father to son. And you know it as, I'm sure, verse 3, the coat of many colors, right? Jacob gives Joseph this special gift, this special garment. Interestingly, it's probable that our popular understanding of this robe is a bit uh, misguided. So a more accurate, more literal translation of this phrase would simply communicate that this was a long-sleeved robe. It's basically kind of what it says there. Less exciting, but probably more true. So the only other time, what's interesting is the only other time that this description is used in the Old Testament is describing the royal attire of the daughters of David later on. They were given and adorned with the same word, long-sleeved robes. Why? Well, 2 Samuel explains this is how the virgin daughters of the king were dressed. In other words, this type of robe it identified the one who was chosen out of all the rest, one who was royal, one who was special, set apart. And herein, I think we actually see more of the significance of the greatness of the gift to Joseph and why it was so offensive then to his brothers. In giving this gift to Joseph, Jacob is intentionally overlooking his legitimate firstborn son, Reuben, and it's like he's replacing him in the pecking order with his firstborn son of his favorite bride, Rachel. So this is, this is not just a nice birthday gift that Jacob is giving to Joseph. 
It's Jacob's way to intentionally, he's publicly setting Joseph apart from the others. Now, parents, I'll just take advantage of the layup here and say, let's not do this. So this is descriptive, not prescriptive for us. So even if you do have a favorite, let's keep the targeted gifts to a minimum. And if you're thinking, if you're reading along, you're thinking, man, I wonder if the brothers got the message. Well, you're tracking along with the story. Because while Jacob was dearly loved by his father, he was bitterly hated by his brothers. Look at verse 4. When his brothers saw, it was a direct reaction to the love, the favoritism of their father. When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all the brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. It's not uh, something to be overlooked. This is reiterated over and over in this passage. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 11. The sense is that this hatred, is, it's, it's not something that's remaining stagnant in the heart of these brothers. It's growing. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, so they hated him even more. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. Joseph's brothers, they're a pretty good case study in the nature, the sinful nature of people. And specifically, the nature of the sin of anger or bitterness. All right, so think about it. So these brothers, these are the men who would eventually sell their brother into slavery and then act as if he's dead. But notice they didn't begin at that level of bitterness, did they? It grew in them over time. So before they essentially murdered him for real, they had murdered him a thousand times in their hearts. Look how it began, verse 4. They hated him. And how, did, how could you see, how could you perceive that hatred? Well, they could not speak peacefully to him. They didn't begin with plans to kill Joseph. They began with this little, this, in their eyes, justifiable sin of bitterness, of anger. They saw him and their blood pressure kind of spiked. They saw him coming near and they kind of feel their blood getting a little hot, which kept them from even engaging him in any kind of cordial conversation. You know, I think we'd do well as a church even to pause here and reflect on the nature and the outcome of the unchecked sin of bitterness. We must beware of bitterness toward one another. So I just ask, is there anyone, is there anyone whom you're growing to resent? Is there anyone whose presence makes your blood pressure spike, blood run hot, to the point where you're not even be able to converse with them, to speak peacefully to them? If Joseph's brothers, they teach us anything, it's that we have to beware of bitterness in our hearts because bitterness is not benign. It's a cancer that grows. So there's a reason that even, even as we gather here around the Lord's table after the sermon, that we invite you to examine your hearts and your relationships even within the church family. And the reason is that harbored, self-justified anger towards the people for whom Jesus died, it's a dangerous affront to the gospel. Even in that, even in your heart, the church is split already. 
It's a cancer that has to be rooted out. Joseph's brothers did not check their bitterness. And like a cancer, it just grows throughout the narrative. And we see next that their anger grew deeper, even by the actions of God. All right, so this is where you really know that bitterness is taking hold in your heart. When you see that the Lord blesses someone and you hate them because they're the recipient of that blessing. We see this in verses 5 through 11. Two dreams are given, we would assume, by the Lord, even though he's not explicitly named. Later on, they're attributed to providence. Two dreams given to Joseph by the hand of God. So dreams in this narrative, they take a prominent role in in Joseph's story going forward. So as you may know, in the coming passages, we'll see that Joseph takes on kind of this providentially appointed position as an inspired dream interpreter. Here, though, he simply communicates two dreams that have been given to him personally. You see the first one there in verses 5 through 8. The gist is he and his brothers are not shepherds, but farmers in this dream. And as farmers, they're gathering up cut grass or wheat, and they're binding it into sheaths. And all of a sudden, Joseph's sheath stands upright. And all the others' sheaths, seem, they seem to love this. So they gather around Joseph's sheath, and they bow down to it. In the second dream, they're in verses 9 through 11. Notice we're focused not on the earth, but on heaven. Seems more of a cosmic, all-encompassing reality in view. In this dream, 11 stars plus the very sun and the moon, they bow down, and notice this, not to another cosmic body, but to Joseph himself. Seemingly amplifying that first point. And the point of the dreams is pretty clear, and the family doesn't miss it. Joseph has two dreams which serve to seem to communicate one divinely inspired, unmistakable foresight. Jacob will be exalted, and his family will bow down to him. Joseph, apart from any personal choice, any personal action, he's been chosen by God. Now, at this, it's interesting, his father, Jacob, speaks up for the first time, offering some kind of open rebuke. Would I and your mother and your brothers come and bow down to you? But interestingly, interestingly, verse 11, look there, the very end. It says that his father kept this saying in mind. In other words, tuck this away. He wasn't completely dismissive. And the brothers... They remain indignant. At the close of the section, verse 11, their state of being is rightly identified by as jealousy. Verse 11. They're in this emotional state, which in other parts of the Old Testament, it just spills right over into violent action. Think of the narrative of Phineas. The same word used there for Phineas' jealousy, which spills over into violence. And this takes us right into the events of what happens next. So that's point one. Joseph, in his dreams, he's being chosen by God, but this leads right into him being rejected by men, which is our second point. Joseph is chosen, point one. Now Joseph, point two, is rejected. We see this in the largest uh, part of our passage here, verses 12 through 35. In those first few verses, 12 through 17, As our concern for Joseph's well-being grows, the pace of the story, it just slows down to a bit of a crawl. So ironically, it's Jacob, the one who loves Joseph the most, who sends him out in the heart of danger. 
So all the brothers at this point in verse 12, all the brothers except Joseph are out tending to the flock. But Jacob wants a report about how things are going. Only then does he call for Joseph to go and join them. Check in on them and bring a report. Verse 14. So Jacob said to him, go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. And bring me word. So we sent him from the valley of Hebron. And he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. The picture here is interesting. So although Joseph himself is a shepherd, he's out wandering in the wilderness. He kind of pictured himself as a sheep. You see that? I think this brings up a good point of reflection. So how vulnerable does Joseph seem to be in this scene? How helpless does Joseph appear? Extremely. He's the picture of vulnerability here. He's alone. He's got enemies lying in wait. He's got no great sense of the direction which he should be going. And yet, think about it. Is there any hair on Joseph's head that's vulnerable to anything outside of the good and powerful providence of God at this point? No. Dangers are all around. None more menacing than his brothers kind of lying in wait. But think about it. As we'll see, Not one of those legitimate dangers is ever a threat to the providential purposes that God has for Joseph. We'll address this more in a few minutes, but I think we just note here as we begin to feel this tension. By all appearances, Joseph is alone and vulnerable. He's weak and helpless. He will encounter and suffer legitimate suffering. But at no point is Joseph, and at no point are you, Christian, in your felt helplessness, in your felt wondering, even in your very legitimate suffering, at no point are we, the church, outside the loving providence and power of God. We're not. In verse 15, Joseph is found by this this friendly acquaintance who points him in the right direction. That is... Think about the direction in which he points him, though. He points him in the right direction, which is the direction of God's providence, which is the direction of this place called Dothan, which is the direction of providentially ordained suffering. That's exactly where the Lord sends him on purpose. And it's here at Dothan, verse 18, that the narrator drops us right into the encampment of the brothers. And here we kind of eavesdrop on their conversation. And as we do, what what we have to notice, I think, what we're noticing, hearing, is all kinds of human plans for Joseph that would seek to undermine the providential plans of God. And we shouldn't miss these. And just by way of application, church, we, we must not be surprised when the people of earth Rage and plot and scheme against the plans of God. That is the norm in a fallen world. It should surprise us when people all of a sudden are trying to be in line with the providence of God. The normal posture is a raging against God and his anointed. And God is not threatened in the least. And neither should we be. 
I think this is at least one great encouragement we can take from this terrible scene here in these next verses. So just keep that in mind as we look at these various plans that come, they come up with to throw off the providence of God. So I see three plans here that people have for Joseph. So maybe you're a person for whom other people have lots of plans. Maybe you want some of them to come to fruition. Maybe you hate some of them. Maybe you'll be encouraged by this. I want us to notice three different plans that people have for Joseph. Number one, man's plan number one for Joseph, kill him. That's plan number one. Verse 18, they saw him, that is Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. At the very sight of his royal robe coming over the horizon, the brothers, their their rage is just kindled. You can feel it. Even their language of him seems to be drawing near. As he draws near, it's it's like it's pregnant with contempt. You just know something's about to happen. Here comes this dreamer, they say. They cannot even stand the sight of him by this point. By all accounts of the narratives, he's done nothing but be chosen. And yet, what will they do? Well, they reason if we kill the dreamer, we kill the dream. So they plot straightforwardly to do away with him, to kill him. They already have a cover story. Verse 19 tells them, we'll kill him, dump his body in a pit. We'll tell people that he was killed by a wild animal. All right, so this is man's plot to get rid of Joseph. But notice there in verse 20, notice they're not just seeking to subdue Joseph. They're seeking to control the one who has called Joseph. Do you see that? The the brothers here in their worldly scheming, they're ironically prophetic. Look at verse 20. Come now, let us kill him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. (laughs) Yes, indeed you will. In fact, we all will. We'll all see and testify. We'll see and testify to the way that the sovereign Lord brings about the plans for his anointed, even in the midst of these deceitful schemes. We'll all testify to the fact that you, brothers, by all intents and purposes, you put him to death, but the Lord, in his providence, brought him to life. That's what we're witnessing here in the Joseph narrative. This is, this is the way, the beautiful way in which Joseph is this picture, this type of the one who is to come. As you know, this is true of Joseph, and it will be even, even more true of the Lord Jesus himself, right? In Matthew 26, Jesus has just finished this long discourse. And what's he doing in that long discourse in Matthew 20 through 25? He's recording for the people, his own brothers. He's reporting the future realities of God's chosen one. And at his words, Jesus' own brothers, they rage with anger. They scheme in jealousy. They plotted how to kill him, how to put his body away. Then it's like they say, we'll see what will become of his prophecies. And they put Jesus to death. And they and we, we have seen what has become of his prophecies, haven't we? Jesus' death fulfilled his promise of eternal atonement. And God raising him from the dead fulfilled the promise of eternal life. I just want to encourage you, church, do you, do you see what God, what a, what a good and providential God, do you see what he does with deceitful, sinful schemes against his plans? 
He uses them. He takes the weapons right out of the hands of his enemies and he uses them to wield his own purposes. They mean for evil. God is working for good all the time. I think here's the message. Church, we, we cannot, we must not panic when people scheme against the plans of the Lord. He really is controlled, in control over all of it. Think about this. Think about this really good news. Listen. The worst thing that could possibly happen in all of time and eternity, it has already happened. They already killed the Messiah. And he came right back to life. The question is, are we living in that kind of providence? Are you living in the kind of providence that has already taken care of the worst possible scenario in all of time and eternity? Because it's already happened. And God has already solved it. Man schemes against the Lord's anointed. That's their first plan, to kill him. And this brings us to a second plan, which is better. Man's second plan for Joseph, rescue him. Rescue him. Look at verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Okay, here we have, rather surprisingly, a well-intentioned plan. So evidently, the brothers were not unanimous in their desire to kill Joseph. For whatever reason, it's not really disclosed. Maybe it's a feeling of higher responsibility of the firstborn. Maybe it's Reuben's efforts to get back into Jacob's good graces. Maybe he genuinely cares for Joseph. For whatever reason, the oldest brother, Reuben, steps in with a different plan with better motives. He presents this plan, which would have Joseph only thrown into a pit and presumably left for dead, but with Reuben's secret intention that he would come back later and rescue him and restore him to his father, Jacob. And they seem, by all appearances, to be taking the bait. Joseph arrives, and they move swiftly. Look at verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and was no water in it. It's brief, but it's awful. You kind of, it's easy to kind of rush through it without getting a sense of the real trauma of what's happening here. Yet, it doesn't seem, at least for now, to be out of line with Reuben's good plans, right? So Reuben still can circle back and kind of rescue Joseph, right? But for whatever reason, Reuben leaves the immediate scene for a time, and when Reuben returns to his horror, there is no sign of Joseph. He's gone. Look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? Now, this is interesting. God, in his good providence, he spoils even Reuben's good plan. I wonder if you've ever had this happen. You have a good plan with as far as you can tell. You're prayed up. Your motives are as pure as you think they can be. 
And yet there suddenly comes along some strange providence that just undercuts your plans. I think we do well to remember that a plan that's good in our wisdom is not the same thing as a plan that's ordained in God's wisdom. I think we can let this little example encourage us, instruct us. God thwarts even Reuben's plan to rescue Joseph. What could be better than a plan to rescue Joseph? And God says, no. In that moment, Reuben couldn't possibly know why the Lord did that. But I just encourage you, if you're struggling with why in your life, that question, why, I would, just en- I would just encourage you to press more into the question of who. So I think why questions should give rise to our pursuit of who questions. In other words, the better we know who is behind it, that is the providential, sovereign, good and loving God, the better we'll trust him for the why and leave the why with him. That is the ways that he's doing things. The Lord loves us. The Lord loves us even enough to frustrate good plans that would not be best for us. That's the second plan. That is to rescue, and that's not going to happen. There's a third and final human plan for Joseph. And this plan, unlike the first, few, first two, actually aligns with God's providence. Plan number three of man for Joseph, and that is sell him. Sell him. First, just take notice of verse 25. Then, after all this, they sat down to eat. Just just notice how hardened their unchecked hearts had become. How did the brothers process what they'd just done to their own flesh and blood, leaving him hungry and thirsty and scared for his life? They sat down for a good meal. You know, it doesn't mention it here, but a few chapters later in, in chapter 42, we're made aware, even through the brothers' own confession, that they heard Joseph begging for his life, and they didn't listen. So they're here, sitting, having a meal, all within earshot of their brother who lies trapped in a pit, crying out to them for mercy. It's quite a brutal scene, and it goes on. So in verse 25, the brothers look up. And they see some people on a trade route called Ishmaelites or Midianites. So I wouldn't get too stumped at the choice of multiple names here. It could simply be that these are two alternative designations for the same group of traders. Maybe they're traveling together, whatever it is. They're on their way to Egypt. And the side of them hatches a third plan, this time in the mind of Judah, who is rather an opportunistic brother. They should sell Joseph for profit. This plan has several advantages to Judah's mind. For one, it's profitable. Look at verse 26. What profit is is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And second, in Judah's mind, it at least relieves a bit of their legitimate guilt. Notice there, he says, let not our hand be upon him, as if their hand wasn't upon him already. For he's our brother, our own flesh. So you see his reasoning. He's he's saying, well, if we do it this way, the literal blood of our brother isn't on our hands. Do Do you kind of see this continued case study of the sinful heart? 
Notice how their hearts, their minds, their consciences, they're becoming so warped, continually, gradually, increasingly warped as they go further down into this labyrinth of sin. Think of it. In the end, the brothers, they're justifying their actions by convincing themselves that they're not actually doing the worst possible thing they could do. You see that? So let's not murder him. That's pretty bad in God's sight. Let's just sell him as a slave is their concluding reasoning. And I I think this is something for us to look out for. This is a way to check our hearts. Because as soon as we find ourselves excusing some sin on the basis of comparison to another possible sin, well, we're capable of anything, even in the church. It's just a matter of time. If that's the posture we take towards sin, even the church is possible of the worst possible sins. It's capable of them. If you justify even the smallest sin by comparing it to other sins, you'll never stop. Because there will always be a greater sin to which you can point and say, well, I'm not doing that. I think this is exactly what happens here with Joseph's brothers. And quite frankly, I think this is, this is what we must look out for right now in the contemporary church on all sides, no matter how you draw lines. Because what we're in, or what is tempting to become, is a culture in the church of sin justification by comparison. So I get to hold on to kind of my little sinful thing so long as I see other people's sin as worse. We got to be on the lookout for this. A church who justifies sin on the basis of other worse sin is a church who's lost, who's lost any sense of the unutterable holiness of God, which means it ceases to be God's church. So listen, we look around and we all see what a mess things seem to be in. And we all have different diagnoses. We all have different prescriptions. We all have different things that we think need to happen. So what's the answer? How do we, how do we fix it? I, I don't know, other than the fact that it seems like the Lord would have us begin right here in this room with these people every week. Start with yourself. Start today. Start at the Lord's Supper. Ask, are there any sins that I'm putting up in my heart, in here, because of what I see out there? What are you justifying? What are you justifying by looking at other people instead of the holiness of God? Or are there any sins collectively? Are there any sins that we're justifying in here, that is within these walls, because the sins we see out there seem to be worse in some way. We cannot let that kind of posture take root in the church. We must keep a keen sense of our place before a holy God, acceptable only in the righteousness of Christ. Joseph's brothers, they had lost any sense of their place before God, and it led them here. They're selling their beloved brother for 20 pieces of silver. Those are some plans against Joseph. Now think of his reality as it is in the narrative. So he's thought about these plans, but think about the actual actions taken against Joseph. 
Joseph comes over the horizon to meet his brothers rather innocently. And what do his brothers do? What is he met with? They conspire to murder him. They strip him of his robe, that is of his very identity. They dump him into a pit. They turn a deaf ear to his cries for mercy. They leave him there where he clearly would have thought that he would die. Then in a change of whim, they, they take him out of the pit. Just think of him when he sees the faces of the caravan of these foreign people, taking him to a place he's never been. The brothers hand, them over, hand him over to them mercilessly. And then he's driven away looking back at the only thing he's ever known to the brothers he's ever known who have just sold him to this, to this clearly despicable fate. And not only that, but now he knows that his father's world will be completely devastated. That's what we see there in verses 31 through 35. Notice, it's a bit ironic, but Jacob's sons, they get their, they get their scheming ability rather honestly, don't they? They bring this cloak, they've slaughtered a goat, covered it with blood, bring it to him. Notice they don't even outright lie to him. They just kind of let the deceit take root in him. They present this, is this your son's? Kind of let him come to his own conclusion. His beloved son's, insofar as he can see, has been violently attacked and killed. Jacob believes Joseph is dead. In verse 35, as his family tries to console him, he bucks the traditional allotted mourning period. He says, I'm not setting a period on my mourning. I'm mourning until I die, until it takes me to Sheol. He will never stop grieving for his son. And think of Joseph himself. We, as the reader, we, we know that he's not actually dead but he may, may very well wish that he were at this point. By all earthly senses, this is an absolutely horrific situation. So we ask again, at what point of the narrative, at what point of the narrative did the Lord just lose control of this thing? At what point in the midst of these three and a hundred other plan of men, plans of men's hearts, at what point did the plans of God just come unraveled at the seams? Well, of course they never did. And this is where we come to our final, shortest section or action here done to Joseph. And number three, Joseph is preserved. Joseph is preserved. Though all may seem lost, Joseph is not dead. He's very much alive, as are God's providential plans for him. Look at verse 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Down in verse 36, the concluding verse of chapter. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is not exactly what Joseph had planned for his life, right? We could say in the most trite way. So counter to everything Joseph could have imagined for his blessed life, contrary to any plans which he or any other person had for him, seemingly contrary even to the very dreams of his future given to him by God, the Lord had preserved Joseph 
but he has preserved him as a slave in the household of the most powerful people, of the most powerful enemies of the Lord. Egypt is this faraway power. Egypt has a pharaoh. Pharaoh has a captain of his guard, a guy named Potiphar. And now that captain has a new household slave, some random teenager they call Joseph. And there's much more of this story to unfold. That's what we'll do here in the weeks to come. For now, I think what we need to notice, big picture, we need to, what we need to know is how God's providential plans, for God-ordained reasons, his plans to bless his people by bringing them into the promised land, what we know now that we didn't know before is that these plans must now flow out from captivity within Egypt. That's, that's kind of the, the trek that God's promises are taking. Or to sum it up another way, God will bless the people of all nations through a beloved son who comes up out of Egypt. That's what we have so far. For the purposes of this small story, that beloved son is Joseph. God will use this chosen son, stationed strategically in Egypt, to deliver his people into the very promised land from where they'll be banished. But for the purpose of the greater gospel story, that beloved son is Jesus Christ. Think of this, Jesus came and we came, he was baptized, he came up out of the water, he's declared by the father himself from heaven to be the very beloved son with whom he's well pleased. And that same son in coming to earth in the incarnation after his birth in the inexplicable providence of God, he was forced to flee to where? To Egypt. And in God's providence, according to his prophecy, God called his son out of Egypt into the promised land. And Jesus, this representative son, he comes out of Egypt as a symbol of a new cosmic exodus that God is accomplishing for his people. And all the way to the cross, in the good and careful and gracious providence of God, the chosen son, think of this, he pursues the very brothers who would betray him and sell him, hand him over for silver, and put him to death. They say, this time, it's not a goat's blood that covers his garments, it's his very own blood. And in doing this, God has called his chosen one out of Egypt into the promised land to secure his people's place there for all time. In Christ now, we have forgiveness and eternal life. Think of Jesus in the garden. Think of Jesus on the cross. Like Joseph, he was in the worst place he could possibly imagine, which was exactly where he was meant by God the Father to be. Please don't think that your circumstances lead to some kind of conclusion that the Lord hates you, is not in control of your life, is working things for evil, is betrayed you. The very worst thing that could ever happen to Joseph, it happened. And the Lord saved him. The very worst thing that could happen to the Christ, it's happened. And the Lord did not leave his soul, his body to corruption, but raised him up. Church, God has, God does, God will always move in mysterious ways. Bank on that. His ways in Christ are decisive, they're hidden, they're mysterious, and they're good.
Listen to just two more verses from William Cooper as we close. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we have to trust you for this. We don't have anywhere else to turn. We trust you that your purposes will ripen fast, that you are unfolding them every hour, that the bud as we experience it now really is bitter, but it really will be sweet, that we are sure to err in our blind unbelief, but you are your own interpreter. You will make all things plain to us soon. Lord, make us a people, make us a church who trust you. Make us a people who don't rely on our own um, understanding, who lean not on on our own understanding, but trust in you with all our hearts. We need you for this. We want you to be glorified in this as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.